all people want to fight for the land. It's important. And for today, though, we, the three of us, would like to invite you all to share your worldviews with us and to explore what biocultural restoration means. Or in another way of saying it, which we're borrowing from people in Canada, how do you see with two eyes? And I would encourage you to maybe explore this phrase and this idea of bringing worldviews together in your own cultural context, within your own communities, because to blanket statement and say that one biocultural framework is going to work for all indigenous people is not only naive, but disrespectful to all the things that I just said. Place-based cultures cannot escape that reality that where we are is important. Did uh, you guys steal a clicker? Or is it over here? Oh, it's right there. I so <clears throat> we forgot to fix this. My apologies. So ignore all these brackets. That was our own notes. And we messed that up. But <clears throat> my name's Luca, and I just did with the where we stand. But I just wanted to kind of explain how we're going to do this. So we're, we labeled it a workshop, and that term is a little bit ambiguous, but what we're meaning to do is explain what traditional ecological knowledge is, or indigenous knowledge, and then compare that to scientific ecological knowledge, and scientific ways of knowing. And then bring them together to see how could they benefit each other for indigenous people. And to uh, transition into that part, we're just going to explain some of the background of what we see as two-eyed seeing, and then also some restoration frameworks. And as an example, we're going to focus on Onondaga Lake. And Kaya will explain that and the history and kind of ask some questions about that restoration. And then towards then, then we'll begin the discussion slash workshop where we encourage as many people as possible to just share what you're willing to share about how you, you are perceiving what we're talking about and maybe what your ideas or what you've seen in the past as a successful biocultural restoration. And with all that being said, I want to pass the floor over to Annie, and she'll explain a little bit more about what I'm talking about more. Hi, yeah, my name is Annie Sorrell. Um, okay, so Luja kind of talked about a little bit about where we kind of stand right now. And what I want to talk to you is, is what people actually think about places. It's not something that you generally think about. It's kind of like this obsolete thing of, it's kind of where I go, it's this is where I live, this is what I do. Um, but really you don't understand the importance of it until, and this is what happened last time I started talking, um, <laughs> exactly the same thing. Um, uh, okay, so I'm just gonna keep talking. Um, so when you, when you start thinking about a place, um, you kind of generally, everyone, when I say place, you think of automatically something. Mine is the Mission Islands every time I think about it, no matter where I live, um, it's my home. So that's automatically we think about. So as indigenous people, we know that when that is taken away, you understand the implications that come with that. And so once you understand that, you can see that there's a certain smell that isn't there. There's a certain lack of sky that isn't there. You can look at it as like kind of understanding culinary foods or kind of colors and stuff like that. But when you have a deep connection to a place where you actually have 
this communal knowledge over generations since time immemorial where this knowledge is passed down and when that place is taken away, kind of what do you do? Where do you go from there? Um, so kind of really understanding implications and, and I think that's why it's important when you do where we stand um, because you need to understand where, where what land you're on because that land belonged to somebody. That land has knowledge that, that people have learned from for generations. And so it makes you really understand that it's not just a place, but it's also people make the places and that it's interconnected and you can't have one without the other. And, and that's something that's really important to understand when it comes to traditional ecological knowledge. And it's on the thing right now. Um, and so what's really important about traditional ecological knowledge or TEK, um, kind of was what I'm gonna say because I'll bumble over the words, um, is really understanding how how you go from the beginning, looking at it through, like Ledger saying, was, was, was these two lenses, and really understanding that you can have a Western, Western lens, but you can also have your traditional lens. And really understanding that indigenous people have worked with the land, they have learned from the land, they know how the land works. And when you're only looking at with one eye, you're not getting the full picture. And so with TEK, you really are allowed to have a full um, picture where you can include everyone and everyone has a seat at the table, which I think is probably the most important thing that TEK brings is everyone is included. And so, I mean, I kind of talked about it. So um, Kaya is gonna kind of talk about this two eyes, this two eye seeing framework, and he's gonna kind of really delve into how TEK can be used in, in restoration projects, and he's going to talk about Onondaga, where we spent the last year of our grad school, and he's going to focus on that. Thanks, Annie. Um, I'm Kaya Deerinwater, and um, I am a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and I go to school in Syracuse. So this term, Eduwaptamunk, is a uh, term coined by Elder... Um, Albert Marshall, who's Mi'kmaq um, from Canada, and um, what this talks about is taking the strengths of both the colonial worldview and the indigenous worldview, and um, using both those lenses to find a successful path forward. Um, it um, it's a gift to be able to do this, and. It's something that we, as us graduate students in um, our program, are trying to cultivate. Um, it is also, it can be used, um, a curriculum can be created from using this approach um, for indigenous students um, to learn STEM more fluidly. Uh, it, in it integrates both the, um, both worldviews that um, a lot of people in indigenous communities are familiar with. Um, and it's the basis for reciprocity, accountability, and co-learning. Uh, with that introduction, I'd like to um, bring it to our example for today. And uh, Onondaga Lake is uh, in upstate New York. It's right on to the north of Syracuse, New York. Uh, the lake is about uh, four miles long and about a mile wide. Um, it drains into the 
um, Lake Ontario, which eventually goes to the Atlantic Ocean, as you know. Um, and unfortunately, it is, uh, has the nickname of being the most polluted lake in America, as well as being the second most polluted lake in the whole world. Um, it earned this because of the Superfund site that was uh, designated there in 1994 from all the uh, industrial um, processes that took place on its southern shores. Um, the, some of the environmental issues that are ongoing are um, nutrients and mud boils. Uh, mostly this is due to the uh, metros, Metro City's wastewater treatment plant, uh, which cause algal blooms and hypoxia, which, you know, kill off large amounts of fish and um, aquatic wildlife. And then there's also naturally occurring mud boils that um, bring salinity and um, uh, sediments into the lake. And these were exacerbated by the um, industrial um, activities that were going on in in the area when they were pumping all these sediments and salts to um, into the lake. Um, those are the organic problems and then there are also waste beds, um, the sediments like I just mentioned that contain all the chemicals. There are 48 different chemicals that are uh, of concern for the Superfund site and bioaccumulation that's a I would say that's a huge one because it has lasting effects on the whole food web and the whole region, really. Um, so to, to address these issues, there has been a lot of um, plans developed and actions taken. Um, as you can see, these polygons are all the different subcategories that the US EPA and the various engineering firms um, tried to break it down in, into um, little pieces that they could solve individually. Um, so bioremediation is one, and that's where you take um, algae or uh, living plants, macrophytes, and um, they uptake the chemicals, and then you take them off-site and dispose of them. There's uh, been retention walls to, to handle the sediment. The, the sediment has just been straight up dredged out of the whole lake, and then again, taken off-site and put in a chemical waste dump. And lastly, there's the capping, um, which hopefully addresses the uh, bioaccumulation because after the dredging, they put some inert substrate back on top and then fill that with sand. Um, unfortunately, the cap is already slipping and leaking, so um, which leads me to my next slide. Is, is it done? People say that the restoration has been accomplished, uh, but as you can see, um, and I, I just told you, the, the cap is slipping and you can't eat fish from the lake, you can't swim in the lake, um, but there has been some successes. 184 species have returned, so uh, you see life there when you go and walk the shores but again, it's kind of eerie because you don't see anyone swimming. There's no boats or anything there. So um, you wonder about the birds that are eating the fish and stuff. Uh, um, 
So I, this brings me to my next point, and I, I would like to, to pose these questions for you. What is the goal of, of each individual restoration project? Who gets to decide those goals? Like Annie was mentioning, who is consulted about this? Um, what are the values? That's kind of a baseline. Um, what values are guiding this restoration? Is it um, because you are told by your stories that that's your responsibility? Or are you mandated by some federal agency that you can't exceed 0.22 ppms of X contaminant? Um, and who or what is this lake for? Who gets to enjoy it? Um, what are the boundaries of this lake? Um, I told you where the lake sits, um, and I told you a little bit about the watershed, but what, what, what does that mean to you? Um, so what I didn't mention is this lake is the founding place for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, Mohawk, Oneida, and later the Tuscarora peoples all call this place the center of their territory. And this is where the Great Law of Peace took place. This is where Hiawatha and the Great Peacemaker came together. <clears throat> this is where the term bury the hatchet was created because those seven nation, or six nations um, laid down their weapons of war and came together to form the Confederacy. And that Confederacy is also the the, one of the pieces of, that the uh, founding fathers of this country looked at to create the Declaration of Independence. So for many cultures, this lake has great significance. Okay, so lastly, I'd like to leave you with this question before I turn it over to Annie. Do you guys have an answer? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. My answer is no, because as, as Kai had mentioned, a lot of it has been Western side. Um, they really didn't consult uh, uh, the Haudenosaunee Onondaga. And uh, um, they, they're not, they kind of are now um, still, still nowhere close to um, including any tribal presence in, in the, the restoration efforts there. Um, so that kind of leads us to kind of this idea of biocultural restoration. And um, so I'm just gonna give you a quick definition real quick, um, just in case someone doesn't know what that is. Um, so it's the process to integrate human values and ecological restoration to increase long-term restoration success. I think we all know that if we have a project that if you can include the community, there is a, you have a lot more chances that in the long run that will succeed. And so when you look at it, you can try to decide kind of what your lens is, kind of where do you fit in this project? And so you gotta ask yourself, what is your culture? Who are you? Who are your peoples? Where are you from? Where are your peoples from? And what is your language? And this doesn't not entail just to indigenous communities, but it entails to kind of wherever you position yourself in your world. And I think that that's not talked about enough. We're gonna focus on Western indigenous science, but you can be a farmer, you can be wherever you feel like this is where you belong. And I think that we kind of get lost in using just one eye, and so we're gonna kind of focus a lot on this next part of what's the differences in the lenses and kind of focusing more on that. And so kind of uh, starting off kind of simple. So each are gonna have, Western's gonna have stories, worldviews, and science. 
Um, indigenous people are going to have stories, worldviews, and science. Um, and so one of the things that we're going to talk about really is every time. <laughs> it's just me. I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. So, okay. So you can use more, more than one lens to help us restore land and relationships. And like I said, you're going to have a complete picture at that point. Can I just use that? Yeah, I might just use that. Okay. So um, we're, I'm going to focus more on Judeo-Christianity just because uh, that's one of the main religions that are kind of worldwide. And then looking at indigenous sides. So with Christianity, uh, generally humans are separate from the environment. Um, you look at species uh, and places more as resources, kind of profitable. How can you make money off of it? Um, humans are more important, um, generally kind of always more harmful. They kind of bring, bring negativity to it. Um, the results are short-term. You kind of want to get it done then and then kind of move on to the next project. You're not going to focus kind of on the long-term, kind of like five-year max is kind of what you generally do now. Um, so they want to reduce negative impacts. It's kind of more like Kaya was saying, like you can kayak on there, you can walk around the lake, you can do all this stuff, but it's just kind of this uh, recreational use is, is what it is. And so you also need to colonize another place to be. Um, we live in a very rapid... Um, population increase, so we're going to need more places to colonize. Versus um, creation stories, where I know my creation story is very much entwined where humans are a part of the environment. Um, species and places are relatives and gifts, and that humans have responsibilities to these relatives and to these gifts. Um, and the results, a lot of the times, are if we use it, it will stay with us, but if we don't, it will go away. Um, and I'll talk about this later on, but also a lot of it, as you guys know, is seven generations. So really looking forward into the future um, to how we can make this land definitely there for our children, for our grandchildren. And then so we increase our positive relationships, active tending, reciprocity, and also re-indigenizing. Um, so just kind of like just like quick little breakdown. Um, Western is going to be individuals and ownership versus indigenous people, which generally um, look at community and kinship. You have communal knowledge. Um, you have reductionists. They like to break it down, um, really kind of look at it as one single section versus indigenous communities that really have a holistic approach that really need to have everything included into that to make it whole. Uh, when, so as Kaya mentioned earlier, because I kind of got confused of the when. So in Western society, it's kind of like, when are we have to be there? When is the meeting? I mean, Natives, Indian time. You know, you kind of kind of work on it. So, but a lot of it is where is important to indigenous people? Where are you located? Where is this going to be at? Um, so, Western worldviews is a linear time frame. You kind of want to look at it as more of um, you're going to like it's going to continue to grow. It's going to be this rapid expansion. You're not going to look behind you. You're going to kind of keep moving forward. Um, versus indigenous people, you have a cyclical time. You could have round tables. You have these these kind of seasonal rounds where you know it's going to come, and you have harvesting times, and you have these things that ha occur every single year. Um, Western, you have progress and growth versus balance and regeneration. It's really knowing what the land needs and not what the people need. Um, so, as scientists, we know that results are really important when it comes to Western science. 
But in indigenous people, it's the journey and it's the process of how you get there. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it's short-term decisions versus seven generations. And so that's just kind of going to bring me to really kind of understanding where that fits into research because that's what we're doing now. We focus a lot on research. And being in a master's program, I think I've come to realize that uh, I want to stay away from Western research. And so where, where does that put me? Where, where do I go then? And so the questions that I look at is what are the challenges in Western research, researchers, and university research training? Who should and could benefit from the research? What can be done against this disallowance? Whose capacity needs to be built if indigenous ways of knowing are to be incorporated into research design? And some of the research training that it doesn't cover are what is the core value to indigenous people? And so it's, they don't talk about, <laughs> uh, but I know how to do it now, so. Science. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't teach you how to interact with participants. Um, a lot of it is this kind of neutrality where you don't go past what the IRB tells you that you have to do. You can't go outside this little boundary of Western education. Um, how do you build relationships with the participants? Why should we care about participants' feelings, relationships, um, community protocols? Who can own the research findings? I know when I went to my council, they were like, well, who's going to own this knowledge? And my answer was, well, Syracuse is going to own some of it because that's, that's where I'm getting my funding from. But then the next part, the main part that I said was the community. Mine has a lot of communal knowledge. Um, so how do you recognize participants' community needs and how to share research with participant communities? And we see this a lot because <laughs> we, uh, in the past, it's been rape research where people come in, take what they want, and then they leave right away. And so now you see that research in indigenous communities are a lot less common and it's a lot harder to get into it and they're a little bit less motivated to help you in that. So how do you begin? You have to look at really combining both and it's going to be hard but you have to look at stakeholders but you also have to know who the homeland is and then that is also very important and so western science you have to look at litigation you have to look at funding um, but what you also have to look at is what does the community need and what do they want to learn? Um, because if they don't want to learn, if they don't want to need something, they're not going to help you out with that. Um, you have to have, in Western education, you have spatial boundaries, just like I talked about. You have IRB, you have Western educational systems that you can't cross. Um, versus indigenous communities, you have that they don't consider the knowledge that they have. It's what they have learned from the land. Um, so when you look at Western science, it's ecological reference conditions, it's identifying drivers of degradation, it's research subjects, neutrality. But when it comes down to indigenous science, it's knowledge is practice, and it's really like the well-being of the whole community. And so this kind of, we all know this, is, is who holds the power when it comes to research in indigenous communities? And right now, it's Western researchers. As much as we don't want to admit it, that's what it is, because they get to select the research topics. They get to decide how the research is collected. They get to decide the data. They get to decide how it's analyzed. They get to decide how it's presented. And so one of the ways that we have been talking during grad school is this idea of decolonizing our own research. And so decolonization in itself is, is, is really, really a continuous process. Um, and it's that anti-colonial struggle that honors indigenous approaches of knowing the world 
And so it's really recognizing indigenous land. I, I know that we believe that in order to be sovereign, you need to have land, you need to have your land back. Um, it's recognizing indigenous peoples and it's recognizing indigenous sovereignty. And it's really recognizing that indigenous people get to decide their sovereignty over whatever it is that they decide. And so it's becoming and unlearning and relearning regarding who we are as researchers, as educators, and taking responsibilities for participants. And so now that we kind of went through all of that, um, uh, Loja is gonna talk about really kind of how Onondaga Lake is kind of going towards the right step. Or is that Kaya? Who's talking about it? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's you. Yeah. You looked at me like I was wrong. Yeah. So, I kind of don't like being behind podiums, so I'm going to stand out here. This is an example of where a successful biocultural restoration could start. And that's simply by identifying your values and your ethos behind what's actually guiding the tools that you're deciding to use. So, for the Onondaga, nation, they came up with this vision for a clean Onondaga Lake. And this here is just a picture of the cover. And it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, see? But this started in 2005 with the, the ongoing land rights action that they're still involved with. And like Annie just said, it's about sovereignty and getting back land so they can actually maintain their responsibility to that land. And unlike most Western ecological restorations, it's not just the people, the earth, the water, the fish, but they're including the entire cosmology into the value system that would guide this cleaning of Onondaga Lake. So it's not just the plants and animals or the biophysical aspects of a restoration, but the spiritual aspects of it as well, honoring the sky and everything down to the earth. Another example of a pretty cool project here. Not sure what's going on. All right. So this is the California black oak. And these trees are really sprawling and huge and just absolutely beautiful. And their fruits are some of the most nutrient-dense sources of food that people in California had. And so due to fire suppression and those shifts in that worldview on the landscape, there's a major effort being undertaken to include fire into the restoration of this very important cultural species. And the cool part, and what I see, and Annie and I agree on this, that what really makes it a biocultural restoration is that some of those initial steps that people take, actually engaging with the community and finding out what's needed before you actually make decisions about what can be done. And to kind of encapsulate this into this idea of biocultural frameworks, the, the, the cool part about this is that they're including fire, but they're not just including fire, they're including it using indigenous methodologies as much as possible or as much as practical. So that is gonna be low intensity, that's gonna be seasonal, it's gonna be at the discretion of the people that hold that knowledge like elders, the people that know when and how it should be burned. This third one I wanted to bring up here is a canvas restoration project in Oregon. And like these other projects, they don't label their project a biocultural restoration. 
I think a part of it is because they maybe weren't familiar with the term or maybe just wasn't around. It's very interesting how when I talk to these people that have been a part of these projects, they say that they talk about it in a lot of the same ways that I'm talking about or that we've been talking about all these concepts. And then when I bring up this idea of biocultural restoration, they're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. But I heard eco-cultural restoration or maybe it's reciprocal restoration. So I don't want to get too lost on terms here, but the main idea is this principle of engaging with the people and including value systems and culture into the process of consultation and implementation of any restoration project. And over on the right side of the screen here are the results that came out of this project and it's in management phase right now. So it was successful where they tripled numbers of the Camus flower and they have a huge collection of seeds now so they can continue this in the future and my the one I feel is the most important part is the renewed relationships on the landscape so the people are actually building those relationships and those ties to the plants and the animals and the water again So, not sure why it keeps doing that. All right, let's see if this works. All right. Okay, so. And, and this is, these are three words that we're calling the three R's. And we've borrowed these from other people, but these are the three primary words we're using as a way to kind of guide our own thinking on this idea of biocultural restoration. So the three R's are respect, responsibility, and reciprocity. But what I find very interesting is we've come across other R's. And these are coming out of other communities and other research programs. So why not relevance? Why not a fourth R? Or what about a fifth or a sixth R? And the reason I bring this up is that although we're using three R's, and they seem to work well for me, that doesn't mean they're gonna work well in your community or in the community you're working with. So I would encourage everyone here as a researcher to explore what other R's are gonna be important for these people. Maybe, maybe they don't, have any respect, I don't know, or maybe they don't believe that reciprocity is important. So these are important questions to ask whether you're working in indigenous communities or Western communities, or even if you're in China, is to ask what, this, what does this community need and what does it value? So how many R's are there? Uh, maybe we should be using an entirely different letter altogether. <laughs> and to kind of and our talk, uh, we really try to avoid ranting at you too much. So this is a beautiful quote from Robin Kimmer, and it really encapsulates a lot of our thinking and a lot of our feelings on this topic. So for the earth to stay in balance, and balance for me is there's few things in this life more important than balance. 
and for the gifts to continue to flow, we must give back equal measure for what we take. And that's that reciprocity. But it's also based in respect. So, workshop. No, but for real, uh, it's kind of not a workshop. So, we, but we called it a workshop to get you guys we are going to uh, kind of do things a little differently than just a question and answering. And we'd like to just ask your thoughts. What, how do you feel or how do you think? Maybe have you heard of these terms before? Or is it just totally new stuff? And feel free to either raise your hand or stand, whatever you're comfortable with. And we'll just work through this as best we can. And the, the idea is to focus on the process of how we're doing this, that we're asking you what you need or what you feel is important, and then we're bringing that in to the goal setting and to the other steps that will usually be some of the first steps that are project. So, just off the top of your head, anybody? Oh, yes. <laughs> great. Um, so my question to you is, so you talked about this concept of interdisciplinary research. From a tribal's perspective, I find that it's siloing. We have siloing within our departments that we don't even talk to our cultural people, right? We don't even know who it is in that department that we would talk to. So do you come across some of those issues in trying to do this? And how have you dealt with it? I would say that's probably the issue. Yeah. We deal with is the challenge of working cross-culturally and then interdisciplinary and then working with different departments. And all these people have different values and different goals and different outcomes that they're looking for. So it's a huge challenge and I would say it's probably the number one challenge I'm facing with my own research. And what I find interesting is the consultation process and how people perceive it differently. So I've worked with and been talking with elders. I'm actually still working through my IRB. And the reason for that is I didn't just go and apply for an IRB saying, this is the research I want to do and that's where I'm going to do it, so let's do it. Before I even started that, I went and asked elders, do we need to do this? This is what I'm good at and this is what I'm interested in, but do we need this? Is there people need this? And so far, I think just by doing that, people are much more willing to open up and engage and to work together with people maybe they haven't been willing to work with before. So it's very challenging, and I think probably one of the key pieces to that is how you present yourself and how you kind of talk about your research idea. I could have came in there and said, I think research frustration is important. We have to include culture. If we don't include culture, it's not sustainable. We, I don't know anybody that's gonna be that receptive to that kind of talking. So how we talk, is really important, and this isn't something we're taught in science. We're not really prepared to be good communicators of our projects, and that's a travesty because what, what other purpose is there for science than to help the world and to help our people? And how can we do that if we can't communicate with our people? So it's, it's really tough to answer your question in a long convolution. <laughs> it's uh, to take all that just time. Uh, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. If you, are you taking charge? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay, so go ahead and back off. I'm, I'm not forgetting you. We do. We do what I'm going to do. Take a job with Jim and Jim Cross. I should drop down. 
appreciate the only love you find on your way not made any doubt. So thank y'all. I really appreciate what y'all are doing. I want to speak after this too, because I don't think there's enough time to cover. But one of the things I think more philosophical as I was watching your presentation is the use of the term indigenous. Um, and some of the things I've been taught is to uh, respect where that knowledge comes from. So I know you're working in Onondaga land, but I don't know if someone's Potawatomi. But where did this where did this understanding come from? When, when you say indigenous, it kind of encompasses everyone here, so it kind of stays within that Pan-American Indian identity. So can you break away from that and actually give ownership to the nation where that knowledge is coming from? You know what I'm saying? Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. That's, but a, that's a really good point. Then you'd have to include like 564 recognized Dude. tribes. And, yeah. and like, as much as I want to, like, as much as I want to, I would love to say 564 than whatever tribes are trying to get recognized now. But um, I know it, it's hard when, when, oh, yeah. We only have okay. an hour. <laughs> yeah, we only have, we have an hour. And, um, yeah, and I feel like indigenous is kind of. Um, uh, a term that is not necessarily Native American, American Indian. It's, it's something that we have decided is a better word, and I feel like that is the power of self sovereignty is you get to decide. But I just, I'm not going to say Salish because that's what I am, but I want to include everybody, and I feel like the only way that I can include everybody is saying indigenous. I think I maybe. Um, are you even saying that though? Are you, are you, could you potentially be misrepresented? That, I, I, I feel like I understand what you're asking, and a lot of what we're talking about, are, we're pulling from research that's been going on for decades in this area, and they haven't really called about cultural restoration for that long, but the, what the key is, is they're focusing on cultural universals, not specifics to culture. So when we say indigenous, I agree, I don't really like blanket statements, and I feel like it's very important to acknowledge place space and specificity of the culture. And so we try to be careful and not be specific about what culture we're talking about. So when we say indigenous, we're talking about universals like reciprocity or like respect. But like I said on that one slide with the R's, that might not be true for some people. So the, the key ingredient to this biocultural restoration is that first step, acknowledging where you're at, asking people that are there, asking the people that have been there for who knows how long. And then you can begin to walk down that path and understand what are the specifics. What would these people call it? Maybe they don't even want to use the art. Maybe they don't even like the word biocultural. So to answer your question, that's our challenge, is to use the word indigenous when we're talking about universals, but be very careful and always acknowledge that can't apply these to everybody. And it's really the responsibility of the researcher to approach that community in a way that's gonna put their own ego in check and just ask questions from the very beginning. Is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna move to this side. I saw your hand up a while ago. Hi. This is kind of building off of the first question. Thank you very much for asking that. Um, so now that uh, let's say that we have an understanding of how uh, indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge are kind of at least very much incomplete without the other. How do you um, uh, bring that back to, like, let's say, your own research community? <coughs> a very uh, 
very Western science research community. How do you bring these ideas back? <coughs> That's so tough. We spent like a year, we spent a year and a half trying to figure that out. And I think like he was saying, um, it, it's about like starting a conversation. And, and you can do that within your own institution as well as with your own native community. And, and I think to answer what the first question also, I found that having, having it's, it's a lot more weighty, but having a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, team working on these projects, like Ruja was saying in, in the slides, you need an archaeologist, a botanist, a, you know, you need a whole bunch of different people because in in Western in the Western world everything is compartmentalized, whereas in indigenous it's all one. So finding that that um, team is important, and and having and having those conversations and building those relationships, I think, is what it's about, really. Yeah. And that's probably, that's really hard, too. Sometimes it could take years. I'm fortunate to where I get to do my research in my own community, so I already have those relationships. But for a researcher that wants to go and work with people in Brazil or something, that's a whole other story. But it involves exactly what you said. Yeah, find out what the community needs before you determine whatever kind of research you want to do. And also, we've, we've been talking about, you know, this, we've been talking, in this presentation, we've been talking about the different timelines for indigenous versus Western worlds. And I'd like to bring up the fact that, you know, a master's program is two years. You only have one research year to do your research. How are you going to accomplish indigenous research in one year? It's kind of an unrealistic expectation. So um, the first place what, I, what my advisors always told me was just acknowledging that, hey, this is not the way that I'd like it to be, but because I'm here to accomplish this goal, I need to do it this way. And this is also another way forward that we could potentially start talking about to change things. Just taking time, I only have a few minutes, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> but um, I'm from Alaska, so this is this entire presentation has been a really interesting and thought-provoking contrast to the way things work up in Alaska. Uh, I think mostly because we have sort of a blend between Western and Alaska Native cultures. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Angus and Anoka, but those are two acts that uh, established large regional corporations for Alaska Native peoples. And within those regional corporations, there are small village corporations. And establishing a corporation to represent your people is not an Alaska Native um, traditional practice. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, we have, we have an opportunity to put our indigenous thoughts into the Western science that is dictating what happens in Alaska. Off the top of my head, I can think of three or four different natural resources development projects that Alaska Native people were given a very big voice in just because we have those corporations. Mm. So I think that's something, something to look into. It's, um, and it's, it's a white thing to do, it just, <laughs> but it gives you a very, very solid foot in the door to get your voice out. Yeah. 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 Like the Federated Salish and Kootenai tribes during the Indian Organization Act, they also incorporate. So they have a corporate charter, but what's fascinating is the language in them is conflicting. 
yeah. where the corporate charter says it's a sue of these two corporations, the Constitution says they have sovereign immunity. So here in the, the lower 48, with situations like that, it's really, I'm not sure how to deal with that, honestly. But I talk about it as much as I can because it doesn't seem many people are aware of that. And it's a really important detail, especially when it comes to these kinds of things where we might face having to fight for the genes of our cultural plants in the future from companies like Monsanto, where they can and will come in, patent genes, and sue you for lots of money. Whatever with sovereign immunity, especially if you have a document that's legal that says you're a sewer sued be sued corporation. Um, but that's a really, I'd be interested to know what projects you're talking about. Just so I can. I have time after this. Yeah, <laughs> I probably would like to um, talk to you. That, 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 in the back. That, that's all that. That's all that. That's it. That's all that. All around that's being done. For so much of the Western. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps a ton. And it also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page. And also on social media, right? Yep. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at NDN Science Show. So NDN Science Show, where you can let us know how we're doing. Or if you have an idea for the show, yeah, let us know. Yeah, and we'll put out announcements for our releases, as well as some other content we're working on trying to get some videos, as well as mm -hmm. do other different things. So... You can find out about all that on those places, the uh, social media. But we also have a WordPress page. And just like Annie said, it's at NDN Science Show. And the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. That's NDNScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.